Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. Hello, peeps. So, I am recording this live, which is not something that I had intended to do this week at all. But I went through five attempts to record it conventionally. I am losing my voice from the amount of talking I've tried to do, and my software is giving me a massive headache. So I thought the thing to do is to get onto YouTube, record this live on YouTube. I'll then download the video and upload it to my podcast stream at some point over the weekend, and podcast folks can get it there. But it means that YouTube gets it first. And I'm doing this live, and anybody that notices I'm doing this live is welcome to jump on the chat and comment, but just bear in mind that I may or may not be actually paying attention to the comments. So this week I am looking at models of success, and this is very much in the line of my, my return podcast, my short one last week, the long period of silence that I had before that, and then my podcast series before that, which is um, the pursuit of entrepreneurship in this industry and what success looks like. And I'm gonna be looking at three different businesses with three different models and three different results, but all of whom could be said to be successful in one way or another. And this is where we're gonna come on to. But before I get to that, one of my patrons has asked me to talk about the Horus Heresy boxed set that has been teased recently uh, at a Warhammer World event. And whilst I don't really like talking about Games Workshop products, because heaven knows they do not need the additional marketing, I did think that that release kind of illustrates something important to the topic at hand. And that important thing is that when thinking about entrepreneurship in miniatures wargaming, ignore Games Workshop. They are not a model to pay any attention to. They can get away with stuff that nobody else can do, and yet they can make it profitable. And I will explain why this is a really good example, at least why I think it's gonna be a good example. Obviously, hasn't been released yet, so all caveats apply. Thus far, all we have seen of it is a photo, and I had planned on putting a photo up here for YouTube people to see, but I'm not clever enough to do that live, so forget it. Go and Google uh, Horus Heresy Boxed Set 2022, and you should see the pictures. What we've got basically is a classic Games Workshop box set, two armies, accoutrements, rules, play the game. Now it's different to previous box set releases because it's the Horus Heresy, which means it is Space Marines versus Space Marines, which means that both armies are made of Space Marines. They do not have chapter-specific iconography, so you can paint them however you like. What that means, of course, is you can buy the box set, build all the Space Marines, and have a single army. And I suspect the majority of people will be doing that. The miniatures, beautiful as they are, are not my focus of attention. Rather, my focus goes to the templates, the whippy measuring sticks, the dice, and the technical scatter dice. I saw those in the photography, and my brain went, I have seen those before. In fact, not only have I seen them before, but they are still in the box in which I keep all of my counters, templates, and measuring devices. Reason being, that's what Warhammer 40,000 3rd Edition looked like. Now, I'm not saying that the Horus Heresy 
box set is going to be based on third edition, but the development of the Horus Heresy game has always been built on older architecture than the modern edition. And it would kind of tie in with the theme of the Horus Heresy being this game set in the past to use a rule set from the past. And for that matter, a rule set that is widely considered to be of all the Warhammer 40,000 rule sets, the best in terms of being the most well designed for its purpose. Um, when that purpose wasn't just to sell miniatures, I hasten to add. Uh, so it's not that surprising if they were to go back to third edition. There are good reasons for it. Makes sense. I can I can see the argument and I approve. But if any company that wasn't Games Workshop released a new game, and that game was just an more than well, it's nearly twenty years old. It was almost a two decade old version of the game that is being played today. They couldn't do it. Nobody could get away with that. That that would be laughed at. Games Workshop can do it. And I, as I say, it's not that they've got bad reasons for it. They've got good reasons for it. But they can do it. But nobody else could, uh, with the possible exception of, of Wizards of the Coast. Um, and, and they share that in common. So ignore them. They are not a good model for judging entrepreneurial success or even for making plans about how to build a business in this industry. So just put them to one side and move on. Uh, I do have somebody in the chat. It's Ali. Hi, Ali. Hi, Newsd. I ought to know your real name, Newsd. I can never remember who you are. Um, anyway, uh, I do have folks in the chat. That is fun. Where was I? That's right. Moving on. We're going to talk about the three models. So the first one I want to talk about is DreamPod 9. Now, if you have just stumbled across this video, there's a chance that you may never have heard of DreamPod 9. If you follow Precinct Omega and you know who I am, there's a pretty good chance that you have come across DP9 before. They're a Canadian company, um, and their history is really interesting. And I didn't know a lot of it until I planned to feature them in this episode, and I went and did my homework. So they were... Originally, a company called Yanis Publications, which was founded back in the late 80s, uh, amongst a boom of North American companies riding on the back of the success of Dungeons and Dragons to develop new role-play games, to exploit the open gaming license, to do all kinds of um, intellectual property exploitation for tabletop gaming, mostly built around role-play games. The, 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 big appeal of role-play games is that you just had to write a book. They didn't have to be characters or a board or complex machinery or anything like that. All you had to do was publish a book, and that book contained all the rules, and you could sell that book, and it was great. Now, people realized quite quickly that actually those books cost a lot of money, sales aren't great, and a lot of the companies went away. But there was a big boom, and, and there are quite a few of those are still around today. People like White Wolf, Green Ronin, uh, and DP9 are sort of survivors from that post-TSR 80s, 90s boom. So Yanis split in the early 90s, and by that point, they had created their own internal game development team, which was known internally as, as DreamPod 9. And when the company split, Yanis Publications went off and did something irrelevant for the purposes of this podcast, and DP9 became a new company specifically set up to develop new games, and in particular, to exploit an intellectual property that 
the designers DreamPod 9 had come up with in-house, which is known today as heavy gear. In fact, it was known back then as heavy gear. It's always been known as heavy gear. If you've heard of heavy gear, you could have come to it from a number of different ways because DreamPod 9 did a really good job of exploiting the hell out of that IP. Not only did they develop their initial role-play game, they went on to develop two miniatures games, Heavy Gear and Heavy Gear Blitz. Um, there were two computer games, PC games, developed by Activision uh, for Heavy Gear. And there was even a 40-episode animated series created by Sony using the Heavy Gear intellectual property. So, you know, they have not messed around when it came to trying to make this intellectual property a mainstream exploitable asset. To an extent, they've not done that well. Um, the, the computer games, I believe a third one was planned, but Activision dropped the, uh, the license because the, the second one, which was Heavy Gear Black Talon, didn't do so well. Um, the, the animation disappeared with, with very little in the way of comment. I've never seen it. If anybody has seen it, tell me, is it any good? Um, but DreamPod 9 is still around. They are still exploiting the Heavy Gear intellectual property. They have another intellectual property, which is Jovian Chronicles. I think Jovian Chronicles is a licensed property, but I'm not completely certain. Either way, they are very deep, very rich, very wide IPs with lots of background, characters, locations, storylines, history. You know, it's all the stuff that tabletop wargamers love. Um, I would say, for, from my limited reading of the Heavy Gear background, I would say that the Heavy Gear background was not quite as deep as Battletech, but was probably as deep as Warhammer 40,000 before Black Library was started, and before people really started diving into those hidden nooks and, and crannies of the 40k background. Um, so, you know, it, it's a rich setting for tabletop miniatures wargaming. They've run a number of uh, modestly successful Kickstarters to shift their metal miniatures range to plastic, uh, both for Heavy Gear and for Jovian Chronicles. Jovian Chronicles, by the way, is a spaceship game. Heavy Gear is a mech game. And I've often said in the past that if Heavy Gear had been cheaper this side of the pond, I probably would never have written Horizon Wars because Heavy Gear as a game, is a, it's, it's a very interesting game. Um, it's a little bit like Infinity in some ways. Uh, it's quite complex, but it's very good at capturing something of the essence of, of, of what mecha warfare might look and feel like. And I'd say it almost does that better than Battletech. Um, it's a very interesting game design. They have just released a new edition, which I think is available for free as a PDF. Um, and the miniatures are a, a more modern-looking design. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're still very rooted in that sort of early 90s anime from the, the Gundam era of, of manga that were emerging into the Western market at the time. Um, but, but they're good-looking designs. Uh, I, I don't own many. I own, like, a tiny, tiny handful, but I like them, uh, and they're worth looking at. Sort of not wishing to go too deep into Heavy Gear, the point about DreamPod 9 is that they were established in the 1980s. 
And here in 2022, they are still going. And that undeniably is a form of success. You know, to establish a business that, as far as I can tell, has never gone into administration, has never been uh, bankrupt, has never changed hands in a meaningful way. Nobody's ever packaged it up and sold it on to somebody else, or it's never been part of a, a venture capital takeover. You know, it's always been its own thing, doing the same thing for the best part of 30 plus years. And that is pretty impressive. Now, whether it's achieved what other companies that existed over the same time period have, well, absolutely not. Um, but it's still here, and it's still making money, and it's still producing new content. And that is a form of success. I assume that it has employees who draw salaries, uh, and it pays taxes. You know, and a business to be able to pay a salary for that long to develop new content and and create new things for that long is undeniably a form of success that I would aspire to. I think if Precinct Omega was still here in 40 years and was paying me a reasonable salary at that point and we were still creating new things, I would consider that success. Admittedly, I would also be in my 80s. Um, so I would hope I would have retired, but it would be success. So that's DreamPod 9. That's a, a model of success. Now, there is a sort of a downside for modern entrepreneurs taking on board DreamPod 9 as an example of success, and that is that the culture and environment for setting up and establishing a business in the late 80s and early 90s was very different to what it is today, especially when it comes to embedding an intellectual property for exploitation. Uh, in, in the 90s, we were hungry for exploitable uh, intellectual properties. You know, as miniatures wargamers at the time wanted the opportunity to find a new IP and, and, and put it down on the tabletop. These days, we are spoilt for choice. We are inundated. Looking aside from miniatures wargaming, we are in, inundated with new intellectual properties from every side every day. Uh, you only have to, to open up Netflix to see both old and new IPs being exploited as far as they can to make money in every way. So it's a different environment to be trying to set up a business like that with the intention of longevity. Um, and and that's something for me to take on board because something that Precinct Omega, of course, is trying to do is to create and embed a new intellectual property at a time when consumers are dazzled by choice in terms of, of IP. Um, and it's I think it's a much harder ask than it was when DP9 was established. Um, maybe that's arguable, because as I say, there was an explosion of, of companies like DP9 at the time, but all the same, that the freedom and accessibility of those IPs wasn't what it is today. So, moving on. Um, next company I wanted to talk about is a company that I haven't mentioned yet on the podcast, and I really should have done because they've been around long enough and producing new stuff, but whilst it's been on my radar, I've, I've never really put it out to talk about, 
And the only reason I can think of for not doing it is because I was jealous. Um, and the company in question is Grey For Now Games. So Grey For Now is, wow, I mean, Grey For Now in many ways looks a lot like Precinct Omega, but better, which is why I'd probably say I was jealous. It's a one-person business. It was founded by a chap called Graham Davey. Graham is an ex-Games Workshop staffer. But as I've mentioned, GW isn't an example that an entrepreneur can really draw anything useful from. So I can't claim that Graham had some great advantage from the fact that he started from Games Workshop. Um, he's well connected, but not all of those people are Games Workshop people. You know, he has drawn upon talent in his network to now produce two, by all accounts, excellent games. The first, which really sort of put Grey for now on the market, was a test of honor, which is a medieval Japanese war game. And the new one, which is just now coming out, is Zero Two Hundred Hours, which is a World War II skirmish game. And they are, by any measure, an impressively well-executed product. Um, you know, not only do we have rules, we've got accompanying miniature sets. Those are available to retail in starter box sets that are beautifully designed, well-illustrated, well-laid out. Now, I've not played the game, but, I mean, the critical reception of A Test of Honor has been very good, and the level of excitement amongst historical wargamers for Zero Two Hundred Hours, based on their experience of Test of Honor, has been very high. So, I, I can only imagine that they are well-designed games. Uh, I don't know, Graham. I imagine that we've got acquaintances in common, so I may try to reach out, maybe see if he'll come on the podcast and talk about setting up Grey for Now and what that experience was like. Um, but what I don't know about Grey for Now games is how much money it's making. Um, I have gone onto Company's House, done a little bit of digging, had a look at the micro accounts that have been filed. I can say that for a single person business, uh, the capital assets of Grey for Now are healthy. Um, but there's not enough detail there to know whether Graham is paying himself a good salary, whether he's drawing dividends, whether the business is self-sustaining. But it is clear that as a one-person business that is buying in talent to, to fill in the gaps that Graham himself can't, can't add in terms of miniatures, sculpting, manufacturing, and art, um, it looks like Gray for now is now a self-sustaining business. My impression is that the, the sales and popularity of a test of honor have been sufficient, that it is the proceeds of profits from a test of honor that are funding zero 200 hours. Whether those profits are also paying a salary and dividends, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not here to dox Graham. I've done a little bit, teeny, teeny amount of internet stalking to understand that that uh, his partner also works. Um, my partner also works, and, and I've been helped through difficult periods of income by the fact that she has a good income from her own company. Um, I, I, I'm not here to speculate on whether that's the case for Graham. My impression is that this is a self-sustaining business, and that is a very important measure of success. If the profits from one project are sufficient not only to support the business's people, 
but also to fund the development of future products, that is without question um, a clear definition of entrepreneurial success. The reasonable question in the case of uh, Gray for Now Games is whether the business has reached the point of maturity at which it can be said to have finished its entrepreneurial stage. Is it at the point now of moving on into mature business stage? I think almost certainly not. I, I'm certain that Graham would say that it hasn't. Reason being, at the moment, he is the company's only employee, according to Companies House Records. So I would guess that he, if he wants to grow the business, and most entrepreneurs would want to grow the business so they don't have to do all the work, I certainly do, um, I would guess that he would want to grow that profit income to the point that not only will it pay for him, but it will also pay for one, maybe two other additional employees. And at that point, maybe the entrepreneurial stage is finished and it can move forward as a more mature business. Um, I don't know. Obviously, it would be lovely to have Graham to come on, talk to him about it, find out his own perspective. But from my perspective, as admittedly a jealous outsider looking at his uh, impressive uh, success, um, I see Grey for Now Games as a successful business and a terrific model for entrepreneurship as to a, a path to success. It isn't a path that I would like Precinct Omega to follow. The idea of boxed games isn't something that I see in Games Workshop's immediate future, and I certainly don't see it as a measure of my success as a designer. But other entrepreneurs in this industry looking to get in and, and to make a sustainable business model, Gray for Now is an excellent example to look at closely. think that's everything I've got to say on Gray for Now. Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. I've got three people watching, which is cool. Thank you very much for being around and available to watch this live video. Uh, if you've got any questions, you've got any feedback, any, any input, if you think I made any mistakes, throw it into the chat. Um, it is one of the advantages with live recording that if I if I do screw up, you can correct me, and it means that the recording can be accurate. Right, let's move on to the last of the three companies that I wanted to talk about as models of success. And the third one is one that I have talked about frequently, and that is Parabellum War Games. Now, I'm not... Uh, egomaniacal enough to listen frequently to my own podcasts. So I can't always remember what I've said in the past. I can't remember if I've explicitly said that I was expecting Parabellum War Games to fail. Um, I may not have said that out loud, but I want to admit at this point that when I first became aware of them, I did not expect them to reach a point of success that I would consider success. Um, and I think the reason was that my impression, and again, because they're a Greek company, it's quite hard for me to do any research into the background and underpinning of who Parabellum Wargames is and where their money comes from. But my impression of Parabellum is that they're a company that has been underpinned by a substantial injection of cash. Now, there are generally three ways that people get cash like that. One is family. Either you've got wealthy parents or wealthy relatives or somebody dies and you inherit a lot of money 
and you take that money and you drive that into creating a company. That's one way. Um, the other way is that you get capital venture investment, uh, which is that some third party comes along, you've got an idea for a business, they like the idea for the business, and they extend you a large amount of money in return for a share in that business profits. And that might be the case. I don't know. The third way, uh, and the classic example of this is, is the now defunct Spartan Games, is that you, the business founder, have made a shed ton of money doing something completely unrelated, and now, as a hobby, you'd like to start a company. And you then take that shed load of money that you've already made and you plow it into a new business or a portion of it because you're not going to be stupid enough to put all of your hard-earned money, nearly said ill-gotten gains, but you knew what I meant, um, into establishing a new company or, or a new venture. Anyway, those are the three ways that companies are usually set up in a way that means they have a large amount of capital to begin their investment. And Parabellum clearly had a huge amount of capital to get itself started because they invested in sculptors and artists and developers and content and manufacturing and distribution very, very early in the company life cycle. Now, I do know that, that they began as a collective. So a lot of that creative talent began as part of the business. So the artists and the sculptors and the developers were all together as employees of the business. But all the same, they still had to draw a salary. Their money still needed to come from somewhere. So even though they weren't necessarily buying in that talent, somebody had to pay for these people to exist before they were generating any profit. Now, my assessment of the quality of the, what they were delivering was that I didn't think it was new or exciting enough to attract enough sales that they were going to generate enough profit to be a self-sustaining business. And I thought that the money would run out and they would disappear. I'll be honest, that whether I ever articulated that on the podcast, I, I genuinely can't remember. But that is what I thought was going to happen. Here we are, nearly halfway through 2022. It has not yet happened. Uh, the business sort of made its release in 2018. I don't know when it was founded, but, but it sort of first put products or, or, or it previewed products for the market in 2018. Uh, so four years on, the money has not run out. <coughs> they haven't yet, need some water, they haven't yet, um, also not yet, so they haven't released anything significantly new in the last few months, but that in itself is not necessarily an indicator of a decline. Um, rather, it's a, a necessary follow-on from the fact that they drove a lot of product into the market very early in their business life cycle. Um, as soon as they were ready, they basically tried to deliver four, five fully fleshed out playable factions into the market as quickly as they could with plastic kits and resin heroes and rules and um, additional accoutrements and all kinds of stuff into the market really, really quickly. And I think they are now in a phase of sort of sitting back and trying to understand how well they have achieved market penetration with their existing product line. 
Their products are certainly on a lot of shelves in retail companies. I have no idea how well they're selling. Um, when a company with a lot of capital is trying to gain rapid market penetration, what they tend to do is offer retailers significant discounts on the RRP, the MSRP for, for Americans. Um, often 50, 60% discounts, effectively making a loss on the product in order to get them on shelves in a limited window. So they'll say for the first three months of orders, all orders to bricks and mortar stores are going to be discounted to this point in order to drive a maximum amount of product onto the shelves, at which point they then ease off on the discounts. They start making products on the re profit on the restocks of those profits. But obviously, in order to make restocks, those original sales have to go off the shelves because they've obtained them at a significant discount on MSRP. The retailers often offer those products at a significant discount on MSRP. So if they got them for 50%, they might be selling them at 30% off. Now, I haven't seen a lot of sign of that kind of discount being offered on Parabellum products on retail shelves now, which means one of two things. Either they, well, one of three things, I suppose, strictly. Either they didn't offer those big discounts, or the retailers are under enough pressure to make sales that they're not then offering additional discounts to drive initial sales. Or the best possible outcome is that those retailers have pushed through their initial stock. They have now restocked from Parabellum and they are now offering the products at MSRP. So Parabellum has begun to make profit from their restock. Um, I don't know enough about Parabellum. And I got told off. One of my most recent videos was about the end of Dust 1947, uh, Paolo Parente's uh, weird World War II product. And a lot of people told me off in the comments on that video um, for, for well, I mean, mainly for accusing the, the product line of being wildly sexist, which it was. I stand by those comments. But they told me off for not understanding the game. Uh, and to that extent, I'm prepared to, to take it on the chin. Um, I never played the Dust game that Paolo was selling. I played Dust Tactics that was released by Fantasy Flight, um, which was a really interesting war game, talking about games reminiscent of 40k 3rd edition. Um, so so I'm, I'm prepared to accept that criticism. And it's not a criticism that I, that I necessarily want to, to have leveled at me over... Conquest, which is Parabellum's game. Conquest, Last Argument of Kings. I'm going to call it Conquest because I refuse to call it Clack. Um, so I don't know the game. I don't know how compelling it is, how interesting it is, how excited people are about it. Maybe it's had an impact that I can't see. And if it has, by all means, comment on the video. If your club or your community is mad about Conquest, tell me, please. I would love to hear that there are communities out there that have just taken this game by storm. And if they have, um, I, I will pay more attention to it and I will try and get into the game more. I have read the rules. Um, I, I wasn't that impressed, to be honest. I think, I mean, the miniatures line I'm impressed by. 
Uh, I think they're beautiful miniatures. I love the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex monsters that the Orc faction has. I think they're magnificent. Um, and, and some of the hero designs are just, mm, wow. But it's not enough for the miniatures to be good. It, it, for a game that is, is trying to compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with the, the big names. I mean, they really are. They're trying to leapfrog Privateer Press and Warlord and Mantic, and they are they are trying to, to position themselves as a genuine alternative to Games Workshop from, from their marketing and their content and their delivery and their, and their game design. I, I just don't see it. So tell me if I am wrong, please. Um, so talking about models of success then, is Parabellum successful? Maybe. Um, the designer in me says that they are. They've created a game, they've created a product line, they've delivered it to market, they've put it on shelves, they've got it on tables. You know, in a design sense, they're successful. But an entrepreneur can't, can't afford to be successful in a design sense. We've got to be commercial. I mean, this is why I, why I had to take months off from running Precinct Omega and go back to being a consultant because... You know, I, I wasn't successful commercially as a designer. I'd done really well. I put two new games into the marketplace, three if you include um, uh, Blood and a Black Flag. But commercially, I was not a success. Uh, I had a tax bill uh, that was larger than the amount of money in my business bank account. Um, I, 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 my cash flow forecasting was a disaster. Um, so at this point, it's too early to say. And that's kind of what I wanted to, to take out of Parabellum. That's why they're on the table, because it's easy to look at them from the outside and say they look like success because they've got a product, it's on the shelves, they're delivering. But are they actually making any money? Um, maybe they are. Maybe they absolutely are. I can't see behind the shelves. If anybody from, uh, from Parabellum uh, would like to come and talk to me um, about their business, um, please reach out. Uh, if you, anybody watching this, knows anybody at Parabellum, tell, tell me. Uh, I would love to reach out and find out more about them. I'm, I'm not expecting any company to come and talk to me and tell me what their profits are if they're not publicly traded. Um, but if you'd like to, please do. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, so those were my three models of success that I think... Um, entrepreneurs in this in this industry should look at to learn from um, not only to learn from what they've done well um, in all three cases obviously I'm, I'm particularly impressed with great for now um, in, in terms of modern entrepreneurship I think they're a fantastic he Graham is a fantastic model of success um, whether he thinks so I, I hope maybe I'll find out um, but, but there's something to learn from all three, both in terms of what they've done right uh, and in terms of what they may be doing differently from what you or, or, or I are doing in entrepreneurship in miniatures wargaming. So that's kind of the first part of the podcast. And if I were recording this properly, I'd put in a music bumper here and then we'd move on for the next part. But because I've been forced to do this live, um, I'll move straight on to the next part. And the next part is to talk about, obviously, how Precinct Omega, how I am responding to learning 
from my studying of other people in the marketplace. And I am not going to lie to you, this is basically now a marketing operation because I'm running a Kickstarter. Not yet. It's not started yet. You can, if you're interested, you can you can sign up to follow. Um, I, I will, in fact, let me see if I can put a link in the comments to it. Uh, there it is. Am I still live? I'm still live. Good. I'm always terrified that if I go away from the screen, my live thing will stop. Um, so there we go. So I've just put, popped a link to the project's notification page. So if you want to know when it does launch, and the scheduled launch is the 1st of August, um, which is the day I am returning from holiday. So I will be getting up on the last day of my holiday and launching the product. As the, uh, the project is the first thing I do, and then having a very long car journey. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it's launching on the 1st of August. If you want to get notification, follow that link and click the notify me on launch button. Um, so before I talk about what the Kickstarter is, though, because this is this is about business and entrepreneurship, I want to talk about my relationship with Kickstarter because I, I have historically had a bit of a down on Kickstarter. Uh, one of the things that I've I've been frustrated by on Kickstarter is when I see established businesses using Kickstarter as a glorified pre-order system. Um, Reaper is guilty of this. Mantic has been guilty of this, although they've backed away from it in recent years. Privateer Press have done it many times. Um, uh, Corvus Belly have kind of done it, although they've kind of run these Kickstarter exclusive things. Um, they've got their new game Warcrow coming to Kickstarter in some form soon. Um, no, it, it kind of it kind of annoys me. I can understand why they do it but I feel like it muddies the water for businesses that are genuinely exciting startups. Um, and, and I'd say Precinct Omega is genuinely a startup. Whether it's exciting is, is very much a question of taste. Um, but I've also sort of been a bit frustrated with, with Kickstarter. I get a lot of my news from a website called Tabletop Fix, which is a fantastic blogspot site. It's ttfix.blogspot.com. And if you, you don't know it, I recommend it. There's news. Every day, there are new releases being being announced there. Um, Elk, who runs the blog, doesn't comment on them. He has no value standards. He just posts the news, and it's really useful if you're interested. Uh, he never, ever posts Games Workshop news. So if you want to know about miniatures wargaming that is not Games Workshop, go and look at Falk's page, ttfix.blogspot.com. He doesn't make any money off it, and he absolutely should run a Patreon um, I would absolutely put money into a Patreon to reward him for the, the time and effort he puts into the, to that blog. Um, but go look at it. And one thing that stands out there uh, is the number of Kickstarter projects uh, that are often one-offs or small-scale runs or an, another set of miniatures from a, man, a, a small manufacturer. And I I don't resent small manufacturers using Kickstarter, especially not when they're producing physical products. But I do kind of resent the number of Kickstarters that there are for digital product ranges, when there are a lot of places where you can sell digital products. Which is why it is galling, ironic, humiliating, 
um, <laughs> to be starting a Kickstarter for what is at least partially a digital project. And I wanted to talk through my thinking as to why I went to Kickstarter. Um, the first reason is that basically I commissioned a sculptor, digital sculptor, to work with my concept art to produce the first four miniatures for a Precinct Omega Zero Dark miniatures line. Um, and he's done a fantastic job. Adam at Desert Island Designs was my sculptor. He's done a great job. I recommend his work. Um, I'm looking forward to working more with Adam if we can get enough money to make some more designs. Basically, Adam gave me a knockdown price on the basis that I was going to run a Kickstarter and that he would then be a profit sharer in that Kickstarter, which is completely reasonable and fine. Um, it, one, does rather commit me to running a Kickstarter, but it, two, it means that if I didn't run a Kickstarter, then, okay, I may not have a contractual obligation to pay him more money, but I feel like I have a moral obligation to pay him back the discount that he gave me in return for doing the Kickstarter. As mentioned, Precinct Omega is a little short on cash right now. So in order to raise the money to pay Adam the money that I owe him, that I promised I would pay him for running a Kickstarter, I need to run a Kickstarter. Do you follow? Yes. So that is my fundamental reason for running a Kickstarter. There are other reasons. The other reasons are that, well, I've never run a Kickstarter. A lot of people in this industry run Kickstarters from big companies to brand new startups and solo traders. So I feel like I should to understand what the experience is like, to understand how complex it is. And the answer is not very. Um, to understand how much work needs to go into preparing for one. The answer is quite a lot. Um, and then to understand what the experience of running one and then fulfilling one, hopefully, if I'm successful, is actually like. And I think as a commenter on the industry, as much as I am a participator in the industry, I think it's important for me to have that knowledge. And if it's successful, will I run more Kickstarters? Yeah, I probably will, unless somebody out there wants to inject a lot of money into my business. I think I, I will have no choice but to run more Kickstarters in the future, if it's successful. If it's not, I will not do that. Um, because I don't believe in throwing good money after bad. I'll try other things. Um, and the other reason, the other big reason for running a Kickstarter was summoned by a contact of mine, Ross, who runs Crackon Games. Crackon have run a lot of Kickstarters. He manufactures physical miniatures. They are traditionally sculpted, traditionally cast. Um, Beautiful designs. I love them. If you're into my Bull Monsters IP, there are loads of minis at Crackon Games that would be great for Bull Monsters. Uh, that game is still very much firmly in the development phase. No idea when it will come out of it. Um, but I, I love his designs. So I've backed a few of his Kickstarters. And um, he, in, in conversation, said to me, it's just the best free marketing. And I absolutely see that. Even now that I've not launched yet, the additional attention that a business can glean purely from the act of running a Kickstarter is incredibly valuable in marketing terms. I absolutely understand why even 
what I would consider well-established companies look at the value that Kickstarter offers to them and say, yeah, we got to get me some of that. Um, even if they may not want to be crowding out the, the new content creators and the startups, even if, even if they would rather Kickstarter be, be a place for innovative new beginnings, um, I, I can absolutely see why they look at what it offers and go, I cannot in good conscience ignore that opportunity. Um, now, there are businesses that have, and there are alternatives to Kickstarter. So um, obviously, Nick uh, at um, North Star Military Figures runs his famous Nickstarter campaigns, which are essentially glorified pre-orders. Uh, he's got enough of a loyal fan base that he can definitely get away with that and doesn't need the additional marketing of Kickstarter. I, I mean, I think to some extent, one could say that he would do better if he went to Kickstarter, but he's taken a moral position. And I enormously respect the position that he has taken. So, so credit to him for making that, that decision. Uh, I'm just going to pause briefly because I notice I've had a comment uh, from Stefan, that's really not practically different to running a Kickstarter before commissioning the sculpture to raise funds to pay the sculptor. It seems perfectly fine to me. Oh, that's about why I'm running the Kickstarter. Yeah, the difference, and this was important to me, actually. He's talking about the fact that I'm running a Kickstarter in order to raise the money to pay the sculptor who made the models. Um, yes, the difference is that I already have the models made now. So that means that those four models, the digital files, I can deliver for those four models as soon as the Kickstarter is finished. And I think that's really important to have something you can put straight out. I think if I was raising the funds to pay a sculptor who hadn't yet made the designs, that would feel a lot dodgier. I'm not sure that I would back a Kickstarter where they just had concept art and they hadn't yet actually paid the sculptor to do the designs because, and this isn't, <laughs> This isn't a comment on Adam. This is a comment on artists in general. Every artist I've ever worked with, yeah, every artist, even the best of artists I've worked with, have a tendency for deadlines to slip. Um, and, and my deadlines slip all the time. My game design deadlines have crashed and burned badly over the last 12 months. Um, so I, I would hate to offer something where I didn't have confidence in delivering it quite quickly. Um, so that's my thought on that. So those are, that's, that's kind of why I came back to Kickstarter and went, okay, fine. Um, I did look at the alternatives. I was talking about alternatives. Nickstarter doesn't work for me. I don't have an audience that's big enough to just run a pre-order campaign. Um, I looked at other crowdfunding sites like Indiegogo. Um, they offer different things, but generally what they offer is lower fees. And Kickstarter has fought back hard against that, and their fees are now down on what they were, which is a big deal. So Kickstarter kind of wins. Um, there are others like GameFound that are great if you're releasing a whole game product, but I felt like it wasn't right for just miniatures. If I was releasing a new with accompanying miniatures, I might well go to GameFound. Um, but, uh, but Kickstarter is great if it's just, just the miniatures product. Um, other alternatives were just to put them straight into the market. Just produce them, stick them on, web, on my website. 
um, if you saw my sales figures, you'd know that that was not a good idea. They, they'd sit there gathering dust and I'd have stock that I couldn't ship for months. Um, I still have a lot of Strato Minis stock. Um, please do look at my website. Please do buy stuff. Um, I, it's gathering dust in my studio. Um, please buy it. Um, that said, so that's why it's not going to go just straight up on my website. Um, Kickstarter made all the right kinds of sense. So hence, I am running a Kickstarter campaign. So having said all of that, and conscious that we are now 47 minutes in, and I'd like to keep this under an hour, let me talk about what the Kickstarter is. What you will see, if you go to the pre-order launch page, all you will see is, is a photo uh, that includes a part of one of the miniatures. The initial offer is four miniature designs. And if you've got Operation Nemesis, they will be familiar to you. We've got Abdullah, Kurtz, Ngana, and KB3, the drone. So those are my four heroes that are releasing. I consider four to be a good entry-level team for playing Zero Dark, which is why it started with four heroes. Um, they are already sculpted. They are already printed. Um, in, in test prints. So I've had test prints of them. My printer, which is Mr. Lee's Minis, uh, has upgraded their printer since they did my test prints. So I've got a better printer to use. So I will get better prints. Um, and backers of the Kickstarter can either back for digital or for physical. So you can either back for one or more of the four digital files and you'll get STLs or you can back for the physical files and you'll get resin prints. That's the basic offer. Uh, you can get one or more, up to four of, of the heroes. Um, then there are inevitably stretch goals. The funding target is £1,250. Uh, that figure is based on enough money to pay Adam what I owe him, cover all of the funds, cover the tax, and then shipping is extra if you buy the physical products. Um, and then there's a little bit of leeway on top of that, tiny bit of leeway, uh, just to cover any unexpected increases in shipping costs that should poke up between now and fulfillment. So um, that's it. The stretch goals, however, are to first increase the number of miniatures. So I've done the concept art for additional miniatures, but Adam has not yet sculpted them. So there obviously will be a delay in delivery on the additional heroes. Um, I will tease the concept art as the campaign goes along if we get close to those stretch goals. There is also upgrades to the miniatures. So at the moment, the miniatures are just heroes. They're multi-part minis, the heads and separate arms and stuff. Um, and the upgrades will allow you to add backpacks and then alternative weapons because the arms are separate. So we can create new arms with new weapons. If we push through those basic Kickstarters, we will then push into the realm of new materials. So I am looking at being able to take the improved test prints make some modifications to them to make them suitable for resin casting, cold cast resin molding. So traditional molding in, in en masse, rather than putting them through a printer. 
Um, it is lower energy consumption, it is lower material consumption, and creates higher volumes. So if there's enough interest, that will allow me to put resin casts of the designs into the hands of backers and onto the shelves of my web store. So that would be good. If we reach beyond that, we'll look at white metal. Um, and I will take those resin masters, turn them into uh, hard rubber molds that will then be cast in white metal uh, with the same level of fidelity. So that's the materials aspiration. And then beyond that, there are some other Kickstarters, which is for basically for some interesting other miniatures designs, which may exist partially in concept, but which it's the aspirational stuff. It's, you know, it's when we get beyond 8,000 pounds up to 10,000 pounds in, in backer levels. Um, I'll be able to make one of my heroes on a motorcycle because we brought motorcycles into Operation Nemesis. Um, and um, a, an X-Mech. So a, a Precinct Omega designed X-Mech. Um, I will not do the concept designing for X-Mechs because I'm rubbish at drawing mechs. I will find a professional to do that design and get that over to Adam as well. That is a long-term, that would probably take 12 months to fulfill the X-Mech. So I'm letting you know now that, that I've got a 12-month plan for fulfillment. Um, that's basically the campaign. If we go beyond 10,000, I may make up new stretch goals, uh, but I want to keep it achievable. So what I'm more likely to do is to take the proceeds from anything that we raise beyond our maximum stretch goal and turn that towards another future round of miniatures development um, that will begin to add things like um, modular grunts, bosses, nemesis, um, and then additional things like sentry guns, uh, sentinels, mines, street furniture, maybe. One of my patrons asked about street furniture and terminals and stuff. There are some brilliant manufacturers already out there, Antonosity's Workshop, um, Micro Art Studios, uh, people like that who already make great street furniture stuff. So I'm not sure that I'd be adding anything to the market to be producing those, but I'll, I'll look at it and see what else we could add. Um, but I think I've got a game design schedule. So if I push through this Kickstarter and it goes well, I think if I run another Kickstarter, it will be geared more towards developing game content. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. So there we go. We're approaching an hour. Um, this has been an unexpected live broadcast. So for those of you that, that missed me going live, don't worry, you didn't miss anything. Um, I didn't expect to be recording live. Um, damn, it, basically, it was a sound thing. Um, I would test my microphone and it worked fine. And then I'd record 10 minutes of content and I'd check in my uh, editor and none of the audio was recorded. It was incredibly frustrating. And I don't know why it was happening. So I'm going to have to go away and do some technical digging to work out what's going on there. Because um, otherwise I'm going to have to do something like run Audacity at the same time as I'm running my video recorder just so that I've got audio and video. Uh, which I can do, but, you know, it's 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 a Heath Robinson solution I'd like to avoid. Anyway, thank you, those of you who did come in to say hello. Oh, hello. I've just had an update. Breaking news. Uh, Stefan tells me Antonosity's workshop shut down this week. Well, that's a blow. Uh, I knew they were in trouble. Um, I thought they were going to come back. 
hey, maybe some of their designs are for sale. I should probably look into that. Let's find out. Anyway, that's enough for this week. That's an hour of, of casting. And uh, thank you very much to those who came live and everybody else who's watching this later. I will see you next week. Warning. Warning. Docking plants released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.